I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hey there and welcome to The Pink Elephant Podcast where we talk about the most undiscussed issue in the body of Christ, that despite all we know, it can feel like there is something missing in our experience of faith. This episode is a continuation of episode 16 theme of the Holy Spirit, but I wanted to talk about a more specific aspect of the Spirit, which is called the anointing. For some Christians, this word is not really that significant. It's not something you have heard discussed a whole lot. But for Pentecostals, this was a term that was spoken of often at one time, although I have noticed it is not as nearly as big a topic in the more modern Pentecostal churches, at least in Australia. I'm not really sure why that is. It's just my observations. But the word tends to be brought up anytime a reputable Christian leader has allegations against them, which we will talk more about later in the episode. So let's start at the most obvious place. What is the anointing? In the Old Testament, there was a process and a product, an anointing oil that was consecrated and used to sanctify a person for a specific role. And the anointed person was the one who had undergone the process of being anointed with the oil. This would include priests, kings of Israel, or the high priests of Israel. It wasn't just this physical ritual, though. The anointing also had a spiritual component to it in that those who were anointed were signified as having the Holy Spirit upon them and usually would have the Holy Spirit physically come upon them also. This was back in a time when the Holy Spirit would come upon specific people rather than how it is now. The anointed person would and could experience the full power of the Holy Spirit, empowering them for the specific role they were to play. The most famous and possibly memorable occasion of anointing would be that of David, who is anointed with oil by Samuel for the role of king. Now, I knew the anointing was talked about a few times in scripture, but I wasn't prepared for the actual number I discovered it appeared in researching for this topic. It's around 26 times in the Old Testament and three in the New Testament. That is actually surprising to me because I'd only ever really heard of two occasions prior to now. We obviously can't go through all entries, but I have picked out a handful of significant ones that may help to understand it. Exodus 29 verse 29 is where we see the first person being anointed, and that person is Aaron and his sons as part of their role as priests. In Exodus 40 verse 9, God instructs the people to anoint the tabernacle and all its furniture so that it will be holy. In 1 Samuel 10, Saul is anointed by Samuel who says, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So you can see how the anointing was for a specific goal. In this case, Saul saving the Lord's people from their enemies. In 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed as king. This is the famous story where Samuel comes to Jesse, David's father, as directed by God. He meets Jesse's three other sons and and based on their appearance thinks it must be one of them. David isn't there, of course. He is out in the fields with the sheep. But God says that David is the one and makes this remarkable statement in verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
It's important to note that in verse 13 we see the spirit actually comes upon David from that day forward, from the day of being anointed. So interestingly, Psalm 105 verse 15 and 1 Chronicles 16 verse 22 both say, touch not my anointed ones, and it specifically refers to the Lord's prophets, not leaders or kings. I just find that very interesting. Then there is Isaiah 10 verse 27, which is where we get the statement that the anointing breaks the yoke. But this is actually a really difficult passage and it's quite unclear. The word anointing in this instance is also used interchangeably with the word fat in various versions of the Bible. So I wouldn't exactly rely on this one for defining the anointing. And the last reference from the Old Testament we will note is the passage Isaiah 61 verse 1, which says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Isaiah is prophetically speaking as the Messiah, and this passage is read out in the synagogue by Jesus in Luke 4 to affirm the fulfillment of Scripture as he is the Messiah. I just want to mention one last passage in the New Testament that I find really unusual and interesting. It is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, and it says, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. It would seem as though this passage is suggesting that teaching is obsolete in the church when you have the anointing. Now, obviously, there are many different opinions about this passage and no doubt there are grave risks of misunderstanding it. But it is important to note the context. This community had many false apostles and prophets who were supposedly having visions and prophecies that were directly from God, but they were not aligned with the doctrine that the apostles had taught. Now, it is possible that John so trusted the believers in this community that he believed that the anointing and the accountability they had amongst themselves as believers was enough for them to live rather than to continue risking being led astray by these false apostles. If that is so, it is unlikely to be a message for every Christian and certainly not for a lot of believers today who often don't have the same kind of accountability that existed in the early church. But it also doesn't mean that God is saying that teaching is not needed. But it would seem that it would be better to be without teaching, being led by the Holy Spirit, if that teaching was false and leading people astray. So why do we need to talk about this? It seems like a sort of strange aspect of the Holy Spirit, right? In the epic saga between Saul and David, there is this situation that occurs that is often referred to when pastors and leaders are reprimanded or allegations are made. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It is a terribly misused piece of scripture that even grooms congregations for spiritual abuse and and sets leaders up for sin. It is really no joke. For some context, Saul is king, but he has fallen short. The text in 1 Samuel 15 tells us that God has rejected him. By the time we get to this passage that I'm about to talk about, David has already been anointed by Samuel and he is on the run from Saul who has threatened him and many others. 
David has been hiding out and amazingly Saul happens to be in a vulnerable position with no idea that David has a legitimate opportunity to take his life. David's men are imploring him to kill Saul. He has been a disastrous king and so many atrocities have occurred under his leadership. But David refuses to take the opportunity and instead cuts off a corner of his robe. But even that makes him feel guilty. And then he makes the following statement, which is so often quoted. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. That is in 1 Samuel 24 verse 16. In other words, don't touch the anointed. And that is literally what I've heard regurgitated. I have observed my fair share of church conflicts and inevitably, despite what the situation might be, someone will say to me, yeah, but Mel, people shouldn't touch the anointed. And I face palm because yet another Christian has decided to echo a statement that they heard somewhere without considering the full picture. Okay, so firstly, a general comment. There is nowhere in scripture where God fails to hold a sinful leader accountable. He may forgive them, but he doesn't pretend their sin didn't happen. Even Jesus confronted the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the apostles confronted the false apostles and prophets in the early church. There is nothing more important to the shepherd than the sheep, and therefore God has a particular interest in leaders when they sin and lead the sheep astray. Now, we aren't all perfect, so there is grace for the leader too, but you get my point. The sin of leaders is not overlooked, even if grace is given. Now, here's some specific thoughts about this passage. David said that it was not for him to touch the anointed, right? So here's the thing. Saul was no longer the anointed. The scriptures are really clear in 1 Samuel 15 verse 26, to say that God had rejected Saul. If that isn't specific enough for you, the scriptures are clear that the spirit had left Saul prior to David ever making this statement about touching the anointed. In 1 Samuel 16 verse 14, it says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. The very reason David was playing music to Saul was because the absence of the Holy Spirit had allowed another spirit to torment him. And right in between these passages, this this passage about Saul being rejected and the spirit of the Lord departing Saul is the passage where David is anointed as king and where it is really clear that the Holy Spirit had come upon David. If the anointing represents the person who is chosen by God, whom the Holy Spirit sits upon, Saul was definitely not anointed in that moment. And in fact, David was. So when David said he couldn't touch Saul, the anointed, it was an inaccurate statement. So what in the world did he mean? What was really going on here? There are three really amazing things that David's choice illuminates for us as believers. Three lessons that we cannot afford to miss that get overshadowed by this don't touch the anointed concept. 
All right, let's start with the first one. The passage tells us that David's men were encouraging him to kill Saul. Just before David cuts the corner of his robe, they tell him, his men tell him in 1 Samuel 24 verse 4, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now there is nowhere in Scripture that we can see David receiving this message from God. There are statements that might allude to the possibility that David ends Saul's life, but it was not at all clear that the way in which Saul's reign would end would be by David taking his life. God was clear to David that David would be king. That was the only promise that was given. He didn't give David any details as to how this would occur. The point is David was not going to touch Saul because God had not said for him to. Now this is the complete opposite to Saul. The very reason Saul lost the anointing was because he was told to wait. He was supposed to wait for Samuel, the prophet, to come and do some kind of ritual that only he could do. But in Saul's impatience, he completes the ritual without Samuel so that he could have the favour that he needed for the battle. He shortcut the process. If David had killed Saul, he would have done exactly the same thing. He would have taken a shortcut and begun his rulership with sin. Being faithful is not just about doing what God asks us to. It's also about only doing what God has asked us to. That is a massive lesson for all of us. Number two, David demonstrates another principle that I believe is like a foreshadowing of Jesus and his example. David had the opportunity given to him on a platter. Saul is there in a vulnerable position. He was not able to defend himself in this position. He could have ended his life and nobody would have been disappointed, but David doesn't. The principle is having the power and opportunity to act doesn't mean you should take action. In fact, this is the greatest display of humility. Jesus himself had all power on heaven and on earth to remove the power of Rome and eradicate the power of the oppressive religious leaders. The power was in his hands, but instead he takes the path of humility and dies on a cross. If Jesus had used the actual power, the actual potential that was in his hands, it would have done nothing but provide a temporary reprieve from the injustices of that day, which were no doubt a result of the sin and evil in the world, right? But instead, he humiliates himself on the cross so that all might have a chance at a life without sin as our master. Even God makes a promise that he will never again flood the earth as he did in the time of Noah. He has the power to but he will not use that power in this way again. So here's the thing. All of us have a degree of power. You may not feel like it, but you do. You have choices even when they seem limited. You have the choice over your perspectives. And when you do have power over other people, it doesn't mean you use the full force of that power to get what you want, which is exactly what Saul did again. He used all the power at his hands to try and kill David, to kill the threat to his position. But none of that could rival the power in God's hands to bring his will to pass. 
Here's the lesson again. Power and opportunity are not meant to be the determining factors in how we make choices in life. All right, number three. The last lesson we learn through this story requires us to read on a little bit. After David regrets his choice to cut the corner of Saul's robe, he does something quite amazing. In verse 8 of 1 Samuel 24, David runs after Saul out of the cave. This man who has been trying to kill him, he actually runs after that man. Like David is a little bit crazy, right? And he says, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? See, if David had taken Saul's life, he would have been doing something that he actually didn't really want to do. David's men wanted him to kill Saul, but David really had no hard feelings against Saul. Or maybe it's just that he had compassion because this was his best friend's father. Whatever it was, he was disappointed that Saul could have thought that David wanted to harm him. What David really wanted was peace between them. He wanted peace more than being king. You see, David didn't need to rush the process of becoming king. He knew, he trusted that it was going to happen. He didn't see Saul as the barrier to his kingship. Regardless of the kingship and who was anointed, David knew that before God, him and Saul were brothers. They were kin. They were not meant to be enemies. The enemies were beyond the Israelite people. Between them, peace was way more important than power and rights, a point that Saul missed. See, all of these are much more significant points than whether to touch the anointed. See, the truth is none of us should touch any brother or sister in Christ. We should not be seeking to harm any brother or sister in Christ. That doesn't mean that we don't challenge, that we don't call for obedience, that we don't confront. The threat to Saul's life was death. When a leader or pastor is reprimanded for unchristian behavior, we aren't threatening to kill them. Let's just put that in perspective. The fact is that Samuel confronted Saul many times as the anointed. Yes, Hebrews 13 verse 17 does say that we are to be submitted to those who preside over us, but that submission is not an unconditional submission because Paul and the other writers of the New Testament letters also acknowledge that there were false apostles and prophets in the church and not to follow them or their teachings. When a pastor commits sin or falls short of the standard of a shepherd, there's a good chance that they are not actually submitting themselves to God. Now, I know people make mistakes, but willful ongoing choices to sin are not a momentary lapse in judgment. That is a choice. That is a false prophet or a false apostle. And Galatians gives us the key on how to tell the difference. And even 1 John reminds us that it would be better not to be taught by anyone than to be taught by someone who preaches something inconsistent with what scripture actually says. Now, why would this be distracting to us? You know, am, am I just having a rant today or am I annoyed because that verse has been used a few times? Look, as the body of believers, this does actually have an impact on us. And I'm, and I'm going to tell you how, and I'm going to show you how this contributes to this sense of something is missing, which is the whole theme of this entire podcast, right? So here are the few ways. 
Number one, you have the same anointing as your pastors. I mentioned earlier that during the days of David and Saul, the Holy Spirit operated in a very specific way. He came upon one individual and empowered them for a task. But we are no longer in those days. The Holy Spirit comes upon every believer. And he does so for many reasons, not just to perform a special function. There is no evidence in New Testament scripture that the Holy Spirit comes upon one person more mightily than another due to a position they hold. Yes, the apostles did many powerful acts empowered by the Holy Spirit, but there is nothing in scripture to suggest that they had more of the Holy Spirit than anybody else does. The Holy Spirit came upon the gathering and was not selective at Pentecost. Plus, the passage in Joel 2 promises us that on the day that the Holy Spirit would pour out on all and that he would not be a respecter of persons. It would be upon the daughters, the young men, the elderly. So there is no reason to think that there is some kind of special and unique power that has been poured out on leaders and pastors. So what does this mean? It means that you are not inferior to any leader or pastor. We are equals as far as the Spirit is concerned. Now, this isn't a license to be difficult and reject any authority. Hebrews 13, 17 says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Now, we have to assume that whoever wrote Hebrews was not thinking that these leaders and overseers of this particular church had any kind of false apostle, false like, you know, prophecy thing going on because otherwise the author is contradicting himself across scriptures because we are told not to follow, right? So again, it's not unconditional. This anointing is not intended to create division. It is so that every one of us can become more and more like Christ, humble in every way, living the life of faith, empowered and supported by the Spirit of God. You don't need to be scared about reading Scripture. You can go right ahead and trust that the Holy Spirit will illuminate things to you. Of course, you will benefit from learning more about how to read Scripture, but you don't have to be afraid of it. You don't need your pastor to pray over your house. You don't need to have an intimate relationship with your pastor. You are not reliant on any Christian leader to live out this life because the same Holy Spirit that is in them is in you. Your pastor doesn't need to know God's unique will for your life. You can seek that directly from the Holy Spirit yourself. Now, you know, if you want to get advice, get advice, but I'm just trying to tell you there is no superior Holy Spirit upon your leaders versus you. You know what else it means? It means that the answer for your non-Christian friends to find Jesus is in you, not necessarily in the church, in the location of the church. Sure, keep inviting people to church. That's a great idea. But if that's your only solution to sharing the gospel, you may not have realized how the Holy Spirit desires to guide you and work through you. The anointing is in you. You can be Jesus to your friends because you are empowered by the same anointing. It also means that not touching the anointed is no longer about the pastor. If we are all anointed, it means none of us are supposed to be slandered, manipulated, or mistreated by each other. 
So to all those Christians who have been hurt by a church leader who had someone use this statement against you for raising this issue, just know that this is not God's heart. You are also anointed, and when they harmed you, they touched the anointed too. Lastly, and surely importantly, your church and your leader is not wholly and solely responsible for your growth as a believer. Now, they certainly do have some responsibility, but so do you. See, when you are anointed, it means that you also have a responsibility to stir up the spirit that is within you, to not quench the Holy Spirit in you, just as 1 Thessalonians 5 says. This over-reliance on pastors and leaders for our revelation, understanding, inspiration, encouragement is not at all the way things were meant to be. They may be mini shepherds, but you have direct access to the good shepherd and you ought to seek him and search him out for yourself, intending to receive directly from him and not only through a second party. Now, I can tell that for some who have been entrenched in this don't touch the anointing kind of message are still not convinced. And so I have some final thoughts to present to you. Was Jesus anointed like David or Saul? Jesus the King of Kings, the Messiah. It stands to reason that he would have been right. See, there is no occasion in the Gospels where we see Jesus being anointed specifically with oil for a role like we see with King David. If being anointed was so critical, why didn't our own Lord, the head of the church, get anointed? The truth is there is no evidence in Scripture that any apostle, disciple or follower of Jesus was anointed with oil for a role. So why do we do it? There are only two occasions that Jesus experienced that could possibly mimic but definitely not replicate the kind of anointing process that David went through, when Jesus was baptised and when the woman poured perfume on his head. Now, let me just say that there are two other occasions in which Jesus is anointed with oil, but on both occasions, the oil is actually poured on his feet. That's in Luke chapter 7 and John chapter 12. It is likely that the feet being anointed had some other meaning. It's also possible that anointing was like a cleansing technique. Whatever it is, it is not relevant here because all previous accounts of a person being anointed for a role and a position involved oil being poured over the head. Baptism. All right, let's start with that. Baptism is a really interesting concept. The word baptism doesn't actually occur in the Old Testament. Of course it wouldn't. I mean, it was a Greek word, but you know, there isn't really any close, close equivalent in the Old Testament in, you know, Hebrew, right? There was this concept though called ritual immersion, which the Hebrew people did to spiritually purify themselves. But a person may have done this several times, right? They may have done it when, you know, if it was a non-Jewish person, when they converted to Judaism, they may have done it as a woman when they had their monthly period. They would have done it before offering sacrifices, before a woman got married. And, you know, this actually continues to happen today. It's called a mikvah. So it's likely that baptism was derived from this ceremony. That's what theologians believe. Now, obviously, by the time we see John the Baptist in the New Testament, you know, baptizing, there are some changes that have occurred, at, at least in how he intended for baptism to be represented. We know he was doing something at least slightly different for it to have even been called baptism. And it didn't seem like it was specifically for Gentiles converting either. 
Many of John's followers were Jewish and yet they were repenting and being baptised. So obviously Jesus was baptised, right? It's mentioned in three of the Gospels. But again, the purpose of baptism had nothing to do with a role. It was a cleansing and purifying process. Jesus technically didn't even need to be baptised, but he himself tells John that this it was fitting for him to be baptised. So whilst this is a process where Jesus is covered from the head with a liquid form, it's not oil and unlikely to be the kind of anointing that happened in the Old Testament with kings. However, there is some worth in noting here that the Holy Spirit does actually seem to descend upon him at that time in the form of a dove. Now, was this the Holy Spirit coming upon him? Well, if so, was Jesus not already empowered by the Spirit? I mean, that's actually a really tricky question. We know that Jesus was conceived by the Spirit, so he was already part Spirit. It's likely, therefore, that the Holy Spirit descending upon him at baptism may not have actually been an infilling of the Spirit as we experience or even as these Old Testament kings experienced, right? But I guess in a way we could call it a type of anointing, just not the specific kind of anointing we are looking for evidence of right now. So moving along, the woman with the alabaster jar, that's in Mark 14. Okay, starting at verse 3, it says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So there are a few things we've learnt already. It was an ointment of pure nard, which is a very expensive perfumed oil. It's likely that it was the most valuable thing she owned. It it could have been an inheritance or a dowry. Either way, it was an extravagant gift. Now, this story is probably the most similar to that which would have happened to King David. Oil poured over the head or from the head. I don't know know the specifics, but it was poured over the head, right? The head was involved and so was the oil. That's, That's what I'm trying to say. Although it is missing the Holy Spirit coming upon him, right? But at least in process, it replicates the Old Testament ritual best. And it's amazing because he was anointed by a nobody and a woman. But Jesus has no problem with that. Even more interesting is Jesus's response to the disciples who were reprimanding her for being wasteful. Jesus says in verse 6, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. I love that Jesus defends her, but even more interesting is the last statement. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Anointing the body with oil was a Jewish custom in which they wrapped up the body in spices and ointments in preparation for burial after someone had died. She may not have known it was for this purpose, but Jesus did. So let's just get this straight. The only occasion that closely mimics the anointing performed in the Old Testament for kings and priests that happens to Jesus was actually an anointing for burial? Now, 
maybe that is a coincidence, maybe. Or, or maybe, again, Jesus is redefining and repurposing a ceremony for this new covenant. If so, what it means is that the anointing was no longer for a role and that the anointed was no longer this specific chosen person who would be empowered by the Holy Spirit for a time. The anointing is for those who choose to die to themselves, to take up their cross, just as our Lord Jesus did. Because of his burial, we now are the anointed. Instead of the anointed being those few rare individuals whom the Holy Spirit poured himself out on, he pours himself out on all of us. There is no evidence in New Testament scripture that this anointing is reserved for pastors and leaders or prophets. There is no such anointing that occurred to Peter or Paul or any of the apostles. In fact, kingship in the body of Christ no longer exists in the New Testament. There are no kings that are appointed by God. There is only the king of kings appointed as a leader over the church. See, every leader in the Old Testament failed They proved that human leaders and kings fall short. They cannot lead us like God can. In this new covenant, at best, they are co-shepherds. In Ezekiel 34, God makes this incredible statement against the shepherds of Israel. He is disappointed with them. They have not cared for the sheep and have only cared for themselves. So he says in verse 11, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. And furthermore, in verse 15, he says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. God's intention was to cut out the middleman once and for all. He would be our king and he would be our shepherd, which means honour your leaders, honour your pastors, but remember the position that they hold. It is not an unconditional submission that we have, but we must follow God first. So this is pretty much all I had to say on this subject, but I just wanted to leave you with this encouragement because this is what it's all about. The anointing is for all of us. Everything that you have heard the Holy Spirit do was accomplished through ordinary people like you and I. You don't need to be T.D. Jakes. You don't need to be Craig Grishel. I mean, they are great, but it's the opposite to the kingdom principle if you have perceived that you must be an extraordinary human to be a follower of Jesus. Even Jesus, though he was God and perfect, appeared to the world as an ordinary man. The scriptures tell us in Isaiah 53 too that there was no beauty or anything about his appearance that screamed majesty or Messiah. He came from simple origins, a carpenter's son, born of a young woman that nobody knew. He wasn't even born in a house but a stable placed in a trough amongst the animals. His circumstances were ordinary, and yet he was the very son of God with the power to destroy the stronghold the enemy had over this world. You don't have to be special. You don't have to be gifted or talented. You don't have to be knowledgeable. You don't have to be good looking. The kingdom resume is not like a worldly resume. God doesn't need to see your credentials nor see what you have achieved. You just have to be anointed which you are, and allow yourself to be led by that same spirit. You are no longer the underdog when you have the anointing. But a warning, we have a tendency in this modern world to be preoccupied with doing, 
The most empowering component of the Holy Spirit is not that which he is able to do through us, although that is spectacular. It is the fact that he can make us a new creation in Christ Jesus. No other force in the entire existence of this world could change or conquer the heart except the Holy Spirit. Our greatest value to this world as the anointed children of God is who we can be to it, not only what we can do, that we can be loving, joyful, peacemaking, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled, and well beyond human capability is the greatest miracle of all. And maybe this has been part of the problem with this anointing theology. We have yet again presumed that the greatest value that can be added to this world resides in a position, a role, and a task. Today, I hope you are encouraged to see that the whole body of believers anointed by the Holy Spirit to be transformed in our inner man is what transforms the world in which we live. The Holy Spirit in us is the hope of glory. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.